You're listening to Real People of Orange County, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. This show is a fun and inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Well, I am pleased to be joined today by Den Bishop. And Den is the president of Holmes and Murphy. And I know you're so excited to go over this topic that we're going to tackle today. I want to make sure you can hear me, Den. Are you there? I can hear you well. Okay, perfect. Um, So I'm going to adjust the volume of my headphone because, wow, you really are there. So welcome to... KUCI, we are 88.9 FM in Irvine, and we have a commercial-free hour to offer you. Den is a recognized industry leader and a member of the Council of Employee Benefits, and he is a very sought-after national speaker on the topic of health care costs, coverage, and more importantly, complexity. He is also the author of the book on health care reform. And, well, you know what, we just thought that... I guess Den and I talked just briefly before he came on the air that, you know, this election cycle is actually more, I don't know, it's just more contentious than than many of the ones that we have felt, or at least that I have felt in previous years. And I just felt like, wow, you know, if we could do something to be less polarizing, but more informed, that's probably the best way that we as voters can, can be so that we feel really productive when we go to the voting polls. And so I really want to do my service by bringing us together skills and awareness of things that really affect us all pretty deeply, and healthcare is certainly one of those. So Den is on the air with us today to go over some of these ideas and concepts so that we can really hone in on what we need to know uh, about how we how we make decisions going forward in healthcare. So Den, thank you so much for taking the time to tackle such a tough topic. Well, thank you for having me. I look forward to it. I, I hear you do it well, so I do not want to get in the way of a professional. So why don't you tell me where we should start with this story to entice our listeners on what and how we need to learn about this topic? Sure. You know, I have uh, I've been working with employers for 30 years in trying to help them navigate the healthcare landscape, and the majority of Americans still receive their health insurance coverage through their work. And that system has just become increasingly and increasingly more and more and more expensive and more and more and more complicated. And entering into this election cycle, um, I had a real um, desire to try to help people understand what politicians were going to be talking about. Our, our company, um, ironically, is headquartered in Des Moines, Iowa. I don't live in Des Moines, but that's where we are headquartered, which, uh, as your listeners know, was uh, kind of the kickoff point of the, the presidential election season. And uh, I think that uh, those in Iowa maybe right now are wishing that they weren't quite as visible <laughs> A lot in of terms attention of their was... inability to, uh, yes. to get the vote counted quickly in the in the caucus um, but health care was the number one issue for Iowa voters was the number one issue for New Hampshire New Hampshire voters and in the national polls is still showing as the number one issue for voters and I really felt 
that um, with the experience that we have in trying to design and negotiate and communicate benefits and just seeing the problems that uh, our employer customers and their employees have had uh, of how we really put together some ideas to maybe connect uh, the public programs like Medicare and Medicaid and Obamacare. How do we put those together with employer-sponsored plans and something that could actually uh, create a better answer for everybody. So that's really what the book is about, is trying to dissect um, the current environment, struggles with the programs, what are things like Medicare for All, um, what are things like Medicare for All who want it, <laughs> what's the difference, how do they work, and it's really trying to dissect those things and help, help people put those into a common language. Right. Well, so very good. And then one of the other things we both discussed in, you know, just prior to going on the air was that at the end, you said that nobody will really know where you stand politically. And I think that's so critical right now in this time that we all learn how to talk about issues without the polarizing nature of our current political landscape. That is where we will be most productive as, as individuals. So I really appreciate that, that we're just going to be informed here today and we're not slamming any sides or, you know, none of that's going to ha- take place. We're just going to inform ourselves. Well, when I, when I speak in front of live audiences, I start with two rules. And my first rule is nobody gets to get angry. Because <laughs> awesome. I find that when, when people start talking about health care, they just, I mean, their brows get furled up and, and, and their, their foreheads get red and people just get angry because they're just frustrated with the system that we have for a whole lot of different reasons. And the other thing that I tell people is that, and we're not going to get partisan. Um, because health care is a political topic. It has to do with the government. It has to do with people and how those things to connect, connect. So we can't not have it be political. But there's a really, really, really big di- difference between political and partisan. Um, partisan means you're automatically taking one team or the other team. Political means it has to do with government and people. And health care absolutely has to do with government and people. But it very, very, very much does not need to be a partisan discussion. In fact, when we allow it to go to a partisan side, on the left or the right, we actually make it almost impossible to come up with answers to solve some of our big challenges. So true. So true. Well, so let's let's take us through this, because this is the most important thing to most people's lives. It touches all the tender spots, for sure. It does. Let me start about talking about um, how I talk to, to folks about what I see as the problems. And when I look at the candidates um, for, for president, um, primarily on the Democratic side, because that's where the, the battle is this time, but, but kind of whenever, as I read through where they're going and what they're talking about, everyone agrees on the, on the problems. And, and problem number one is cost. <laughs> Health care is just really, really, really expensive. It's expensive for the federal government. In fact, it's the number one expenditure for the federal government. It's expensive for states um, because they're funding uh, over half or they're funding, uh, you know, less than half. But um, about 60% of, of Medicaid is funded by the federal government and the remainder by states. So it's a state budget problem. It's an employer challenge. But the but the big thing is it's a household 
challenge. And, and the cost really matters. Um, last year, for the average family of four in the United States that was, was covered by their employer's plan between what the employer paid what the worker paid in a per paycheck basis and what they actually the family actually paid in deductibles, coinsurance, co-pays, their share of of the bills, the average family of four last year spent $28,000 on health insurance in one year. Not and median sure. household income in this country is about $61,000 a family. So it, it, the way I describe it is some of the debate uh, in healthcare is really is a single payer government system what what we should do and that's kind of where Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are in, in in that camp with their Medicare for all and others talk about do we need a subsidized program and and I say you know I, I don't really think Americans want a single payer or not want a single payer what they really want is an other payer <laughs> if, if someone else will pay this, whether it's my employer, my state, the federal government, if, if somebody else will help pay this bill that I'm in, but um, at $28,000 for the average family of four, um, it, the, the cost is just out of, out of control. And, and we've got to do something to lower the cost. The Affordable Care Act did a very good job of lowering the cost for those people who received a subsidy, but that's only about 9 million people in the United States that are receiving that subsidy. Um, so if you think about that in terms of all of the people in the country, that's a pretty small group that got their cost lowered by the Affordable Care Act because of, of subsidies. I think we need to be having a debate around solutions that lower the cost for everybody. I would agree with that. And I don't think too many people would disagree now do you take voters through on methods to do just that or or things for them to look at and consider as to how we might go about that? I, I, I do. And what, my, my belief on this is um, the driver of cost for those with private insurance. Kind of start with that so we kind of stay with the problem and go to how to solve that or potentially solve that. What... Government insurance pays, so Medicare, Medicaid. Now, use Medicare as the baseline because Medicare is a consistent program throughout the country. If we use that as a, as a benchmark for cost and what Medicare pays hospitals for services. Is that a fair benchmark for cost or is that more a fair benchmark for what payers are willing to pay? Because I, so I think that would be two different things. A little bit of both. So the, the average hospital in the United States last year lost 9.3% for the total of their Medicare coverage. So in essence, Medicare pays hospitals based on cost, but the reimbursement mechanism is not covering the total cost for hospitals today. So if all a hospital sees are Medicare and Medicaid patients, they're out of business in a hurry um, because it costs them more to deliver that care than they're actually receiving in reimbursement. And last year, it was 9.3%. So you know, listeners can kind of round it and say, okay, Medicare is paying about 10% less than it actually is costing hospitals to deliver the care. So important to know that, and, and if we think about systems that would pay every hospital what Medicare pays, and there are proposals to do that, um, it would be really hard 
to keep all the hospitals we have in this country open um, because there wouldn't be enough money in the system to pay for that. So we've got to figure out a way to reduce costs, but not so dramatically that we inadvertently crush our, our hospital systems around this country. The, the average hospital occupancy right now is about 62%. So we have some excess supply, but I don't think most Americans want to say, yeah, but I'd be good if we closed down the hospital in my neighborhood or my city. <laughs> um, so, so when we start talking about taking money out of the healthcare system to a degree that would, would create job loss and hospital closures, in most polls, that's where most voters kind of say, wait a minute, we went, we went too far. But but here's the driver of the cost for your listeners who, who either buy individual insurance or are insured through through work is on average private insurance pays hospitals two hundred and forty one percent of what Medicare pays for the exact same services. Wow, that is a staggering statistic. Yeah. So what what's happened over time, if we went back about twenty years about twenty years ago, Private insurance was paying hospitals about 10 to 15% over what Medicare paid. So private insurance paid more, but it wasn't that much more. As we've constricted and tried to rein in government spending because of the, the, the pressure on government budgets for health care, we've just created a massive hidden tax that really everyone who has private insurance and every employer who's providing private insurance is really funding a, a hidden tax to make up for the shortfall that, that Medicare and Medicaid are paying. Um, but without transparency into how all these things connect, it becomes really hard to solve the problems. And I believe a starting point is that we should, in a very transparent way, benchmark what everybody pays to what Medicare pays. It doesn't mean we all could pay what Medicare pays, because, as I said, that I think that would crash our entire health care system. Right. But if we at least understood what is it that we're paying compared to what Medicare is paying, then we might have a chance on some of our transparency initiatives to help people understand what this, this stuff really costs and why. But today, there is no real effective mechanism to force that, uh, that indexing or transparency. Um, and we do see that in some of the proposals. Uh, Mayor Pete's proposal, as an example, um, has a, a surprise billing feature to it that would limit the charges to two times what Medicare pays. Um, Michael Bloomberg has a similar feature inside of his plan. So we're starting to see politicians start to grab on to the need to provide some kind of consistent benchmark or index so that insurance companies, employers, and individuals could start understanding the cost. Okay, so now you have a newly released book, The Voter's Guide to Healthcare, a nonpartisan, candid, and relevant look at politics and healthcare in America. Now you walk through a four-step solution to the current healthcare system. Do we want yes. to take our listeners through that four-step solution? Sure. It, um, I, I, if, I was re, if I was writing the book again today, after uh, kind of thinking through and, and, and you finish, you go through editing, you get feedback, and you go, oh, I wish I'd have said this this way. That's funny. Um, It'd be I, 20 I, steps. I think I, I think I would have said it's one step with three other benefits. I love it. 
And so my one step would be to, to create a Medicare-centric approach to healthcare. And what I mean by that is Medicare should serve as the basis for cost so that we know what it costs compared to Medicare. Medicare is doing a lot of great things around uh, what, what are called accountable care organizations and other kind of physician-driven solutions. And they're starting to get some really good quality outcomes out of some of their pilot programs. So give me an example of what that is. Is that like a best practice for your, yeah, your evaluating it, it medical be- groups that are doing it well and doing it right? It is. It, it really takes and, and kind of looks at it and says, okay, well, who should be responsible for trying to keep people healthy? And that's a, that's a great question in healthcare. Is So is it the government's job to make everybody healthy? And I think in this country a lot of people would maybe resist that a little bit, that, that's intrusive. Um, an example would be in Japan several years ago, they had an initiative that screened all adults for a metabolic risk called metabolic syndrome. It was five key measures, and they made it a mandatory program in the country through insurance that every adult had to get screened for this cluster of risk. And um, we've, we've kind of talked about that in the United States of how would Americans respond if the government was responsible for our health. And I think most Americans are still at a point of going, wait a minute, that that doesn't really feel right in, in our country to most people. So True. we kind of set that aside and say that. And so then it becomes as if the employer, and if you get your insurance through your work, do you really want your employer trying to tell you what you have to do or don't have to do to take care of yourself? And, that, and, and for a lot of people, these wellness initiatives feel somewhat invasive, and a lot of employers who've implemented them uh, kind of feel creeped out by the same thing of do we really want to make sure that everybody's having these tests, doing these things, does it cross the lines? So that gets hard. And hardly anybody trusts their insurance company. So if it was Blue Cross or Blue Shield or United Healthcare, if they were supposed to make you healthy, is that doesn't feel right because people feel like that's got uh, an economic um, kind of conflict of interest. The, the ones who it really makes sense are your doctors. But unfortunately, in our, in our historic system, doctors don't get paid to really try to keep people well. Some of these Good new point. programs <laughs> are really trying to align, equip and align the doctors to take care of their patients. And it seems simple on the surface, but it's kind of hard to align the money. That's really the movement that we see that it is starting to work is what if we put the resources and what if we put the money in the hands of the physician groups and then gave them the tools to try to guide and navigate and make their, their, their patient population as healthy as they could possibly be. Um, I think that's a movement that really started inside of Medicare and has moved into some of the private insurance programs now. It's still relatively early, but the, the early results are very positive. Okay, good. You know, I was thinking of an earlier example of how we may have legislated um, just what you were saying about health care and who's in charge of that. And I was thinking about the war on the big gulp. Yes. <laughs> That's a really Mayor good example. Mayor Bloomberg exa- is uh, maybe regretting that as he's running for president now. <laughs> 
<laughs> a lot of things are coming back to bite these poor folks that exactly. put themselves out there. Exactly. Or in his case, rich folks. <laughs> exactly. But, but nonetheless, well-intentioned people that are trying hard to solve what are very entangled problems and they don't have easy solutions for sure. It, it is. I, we, our, our chief medical officer with our company, is a, he, he's still a family doctor. He practices one day a week. And a couple of years ago, he had a, a company that he uses come in, and they were meeting with him, and I sat in the meeting with him. And he used this company to make follow-up phone calls to all of his patients. Um, so make sure that they went and got their prescription filled. Did they have confusion about a specialist appointment? You know, were they going to be there for the appointment tomorrow? And and the the provider was talking about um, a diabetes program that they were working with with our our medical director's patients, and they were commenting that they had 82 percent compliance, and they were very frustrated. They thought it should be better. So when they called his patients. People answered the phone, answered the questions, you know, asked other questions. 82% of the time, they were able to make contact and have that discussion. When an insurance company makes the call rather than the doctor's office, it's less than 10% of the time that people will engage. Wow, that's, that's very telling. So if we just moved those resources, those nurses that are trying to engage with patients and help them understand what they need to be doing or answer questions, if a call comes from insurance... The patient typically doesn't answer the call, doesn't trust the source. If the call front comes from your family doctor, it's trusted. And it could be the exact same person making the call. We just need to move some of the, the resources around to the places where, where the patient can, can trust that source. But wouldn't, not that hard. Wouldn't most doctor's offices tell you that if you layered on another task around patient care that it would just bog them down even more than they already feel they are? Absolutely. Now, here, here's, here's the magic, that there are already people that it's their job to make those calls, to manage that data, and do that. Today, they either work for an insurance company or they work for a third-party independent you know, disease management company, something like that. They don't work for the doctor's office. Why don't we put those resources and some forward thinking plans are starting to do that in 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 Canada, you know our system in the United States is a procedure based system i will i will sometimes say that you know if you do ectomies you you make a lot of money and it doesn't matter what you ectomize you know it just <laughs> right. we pay for procedures in the United States uh, but if you we get compared to Canada and healthcare a lot, um, Bernie Sanders uses Canada as an example very frequently when he's talking about about healthcare because they spend less than half of what we spend. Um, in many measures, they get better outcomes, and everybody in Canada is covered. So those those would be lofty goals, and and it's often described as if it's the fact they have government insurance is why they get those better outcomes. And I actually don't think that that's really the primary driver of it. In Canada, a physician is more than four times more likely to be primary care. Their whole medical delivery system is based on the family doctor. So is that so, early identification or prevention? Yes, and it's, it's three it's things. Both. It's okay. early identification, it's prevention, because that family doctor is trying to figure out how to keep you healthy, and they know what's going on. But the third piece of it, and then it's navigation. That family doctor 
knows where and how to get you for you as a patient through the healthcare system. So in Canada, if I was playing basketball and I hurt my knee and I wanted to go immediately to an orthopedic surgeon the next day, which is what we would do in the United States, and say, hey, I hurt my knee, I may need surgery, you know, can we get an MRI, can we get this done? So in the, in the United States, we would go immediately to an orthopedic surgeon group, and they would start working on this. And they, they would not necessarily have all of our other medical history and other things because this is the first time we've seen them. In Canada... In the same scenario, if I, as a patient, went immediately to an orthopedic surgeon, the first question the orthopedic surgeon would ask would be, did your primary care physician send you? And if you said no, they're going to send you back to get that referral. And here's why. The orthopedic surgeon gets paid less in Canada if the navigation isn't initiated by your primary care physician. Well, I think that similar happens here as well, too, don't they? Don't we have our the primary prob- care the, What driving? we do here in the United States is we charge the patient. I see. So all of a sudden we put the burden on the patient to try to figure out how to navigate this system. I see. The patient has no idea. How Their to knee was fine two days ago. Yeah. And now they're trying to, to navigate this, this system. So we put the economic and administrative burden on a patient, where in Canada they actually put it on the primary care physicians and then pay the primary care physicians to provide that service. I see. Okay, so let me just pause really quickly for a station break. This is uh, Real People OC, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin, and you are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And I am pleased to be joined by my guest, Dan Bishop. And uh, thanks to the Booth Media Group for bringing your book into my review. And so we can have this, what I think is a robust discussion on what what Den's book title is, is The Voter's Guide to Healthcare, a Nonpartisan Candid and Relevant Look at Politics and Healthcare in America. And so I vowed to myself, and I think, you know, to, to many of us, we all want this for the most part, is is a way to be productive during an election si- cycle and, and not divisive. Sometimes these elections can feel so divisive. And I just thought, you know, if I could do my part, it's going to be to just tease out what the issues are and not discuss the um, sort of the more incendiary topics that that lead people to stop talking to one another. Uh, Be looking forward to what may end up being a series, but also a show upcoming on how to talk so that people uh, don't alienate one another. We're going to talk to an expert on communication. But right now we have Den with us, and he is the president of Holmes Murphy, and the author of your first book is the book on healthcare reform. And Den is an expert, so he's the guy that we want to listen to. He, um, they, he's been said to be the most creative mind in the industry. So we're very lucky to have you here to tease this out for us. Um, you said a bit ago that there's one, there's one thing we need to do, and now we're talking about Canada. And I did want to, I did want to raise an issue, um, but I don't want to confuse the listener by raising my issue with Canada because I, I have had healthcare in both. Well, me, not me personally in Canada, but me personally in Australia, which is a somewhat similar system. Yes. And, uh, and then my child in Australia and then my father in Canada. So I have some touch points on that. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of those, the, the patients that are there, they do not even utilize their own system oftentimes. So much like we have, um, 
we have insurance and then we have coinsurance, if anybody is familiar with that term. I don't know if we have that so much. We had that a lot in the 80s where you'd have one plan and then another plan to, to fill in the gap, so to speak. Uh, many of them have that secondary insurance so they could go and get procedures when they want them. So it's almost like they have two systems within there that you don't really hear about. An interesting fact, more Canadians have, a higher percentage of Canadians have private insurance than Americans. So that means that means that they don't have enough faith in their own system. So Correct. maybe they the, have the statistics, government system, yeah. and then they buy supplemental coverage to, to fill in some of those gaps. Right. Yeah, well, absolutely. basically, so that they can get that service when they want it, and not when their government tells them they can have it. You know, the mm-hmm. horror stories of the waiting periods for the hip replacements and such. You know, those things are a reality, and um, and that's not that's not something to be taken lightly. To we do not have that patience in this country. That's just not the kind of people we are bred to be here. We love things pretty immediately here. And then we love our rights to be tended to, too. So let's let's go back to what you were saying. So does that affect the discussion that we're having about what Canada does do right? Because not, not in a way. I think, I think what you're saying is this is more of a, oh, what comes first? The, not the chicken or the egg, but really who drives the process of health care. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's kind of my point with Canada is I think some people assume that the reason that they have lower costs, the reason they have some of these better outcomes is because of their insurance system. And, and I believe that may be a piece of it, but I think part of it is an empowered primary care-based system of health care um, is proving out to have better outcomes. But now, wouldn't so insurance you, is a piece of it, but it's also who who's really guiding the system. But wouldn't you say that that's entirely what managed care proposed to do was put the primary care physician in the driver's seat, and that a lot of people that have experienced that system of highly managed care find that to be a failure. So managed care, um, in 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 its ideal form, I think could have could have been there and could have done that. The problem with managed care was that you ended up in a system of um, what, what I refer to at times of, of mother may I medicine. So we said the doctors were responsible, and yet the doctors were having to call the insurance company to get approval to do the care they thought was necessary. So we still had this third-party um, approval system in place, sometimes fourth-party approval system in place. And quite frankly, that, uh, that did not work well. It was, it was not and is not popular with many um, health care providers and was not and is not popular with many patients. And so what ended up happening is we moved from that system that was doing a good job of controlling cost. In the mid-'90s, um, we actually had a year in this country where we had negative health care inflation, and that was kind of the height nationally of the HMOs. But, but the American population resisted some of the mother-may-I approach to that, and physicians and, and other providers resisted the same thing. And we, in many parts of the country, opened things back up where you could go to any doctor, any hospital. They will all be in network. Um, California is a bit unique in terms of, of the health care delivery in that you do have very successful HMO organizations um, like Kaiser Permanente that still exist and thrive for those that that like that type of model. But in most parts of the country, that type of model no longer exists. I see. So you would say they pushed it out. They, 
they did. The, the economy was good, jobs were good, and consumers wanted choice. And choice won out over the, the restrictions in terms of that. But you know, I really believe that a, a physician-connected approach can get us the same benefits without the mother may I approach. We just need to move some of the resources. Okay, so where are we moving the resources from and then to? We should be moving the resources from the insurance entities to the providers. <laughs> well, in other words, pay the doctors for the services rendered and stop keeping it in your, you know, in your treasuries. <laughs> in <Exactly>. your vaults. <laughs> Exactly. It, it, well, that's the age-old challenge, it, right? You know, there, there are some very powerful insurance entities that, um, that, that, that don't necessarily agree with my belief. Um, but even, even the biggest of insurance companies are, are moving things in that direction. And the irony that, that your listeners um, probably wouldn't have a line of sight to is the vertical integration that has happened in healthcare. So... Um, the, the largest employer of physicians in the United States, you know, who's the, who is the entity that, that employs more physicians than anyone else, is actually United Healthcare, the largest insurance company in the country. Oh, that's interesting. So now the doctors are working direct for the payer then, in that regard, yes. or they're just contracted through no, their medical the, groups? United Healthcare has gone and purchased physician groups all throughout the country. So there's not a United Healthcare label on the door. You would never see it. Interesting. But if you think back of, well, who is ultimately the corporate entity that's sitting behind this doctor's office? Um, there are more doctor's offices in America that are owned by United Healthcare than anybody else. Wow. I don't think I knew that. When did this all happen? This has really occurred over the last probably six to eight years. It has has been has been that real shift, and it's very quiet. If 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 if, if you're not in the industry and kind of a nerd in the industry like I, like I am at times, you would never know um, and never put it together. On the on the other side, there's a lot of discussion around pharmaceutical costs. And, you know, that's odd. I was in Washington, D.C. last week, and I'll be there again next week. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of discussion in Washington, D.C. around two things right now. One is surprise bills. How can, how can Congress do something to try to protect patients against surprise bills? And I think you're going to see some, some action pretty soon on that. Um, in spite of an election year, I, even, I think that Democrats and Republicans can agree to do something there. Um, the other big topic is pharmaceutical Pricing, and if you if you think about this whole pharmaceutical chain and how it all connects together, there there are entities known as um, pharmacy benefit managers (PBMs), and these PBMs are massive entities in the distribution of prescription drugs in the United States. Well, the three biggest PBMs in the country are all owned by three of the four biggest insurance companies hmm. in the country. Hmm. So United Healthcare owns Optum. Optum is the, the third largest. Cigna owns Express Scripts. Express Scripts is the second largest. And CVS owns Caremark. That's the largest of these PBM entities. Well, CVS also bought Aetna one of the largest health insurance companies. So we've that's, seen that's this saying vertical, something. <laughs> yes, we've seen a vertical integration. So if, if someone is insured by Aetna, it's the insurance company. 
It's the pharmacy benefit manager who is, is kind of the middleman in the whole pharmacy chain, and it is very likely the retail pharmacy that's filling that script. So they are, in essence, negotiating with and against each other three times in the same economic chain. Hmm. And we've never done anything to say those kinds of vertical integrations um, might be a, a conflict of interest. Well, so, so that sounds like so we, their way of um, working around the Stark Law. I remember you couldn't refer to your own organization. <laughs> Stark Law was something that really governed a lot of the work that I did when I was a career woman. So yes. in- interesting. How 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 did this, how did they let this happen? Well, that that's a whole other topic for another show. It okay, is, fair <laughs> enough. But you are very right. Right. This, and, and Stark laws, uh, if I, I try to maybe define that, those are laws that try to prevent um, the inappropriate kind of rebating within the healthcare system, that a provider can't get paid on one side and another side. But in the insurance transaction and how this has all been strung together, they have been able to navigate um, Securities and Exchange Commission reviews and Stark laws. But that's, that's the reality of where we are, which empowers somebody like Bernie Sanders, who, um, you know, part of his messaging around health care is very anti-insurance company. I mean, that's part, part of his messaging and kind of how he has framed things out. Um, and when you start exploring how some of these things have connected, um, I think you, you, you find voters that start to go, wait a minute, maybe he's right. Um, it, you know, it, where there's smoke, there's fire. It's, um, it's hard so not to the see The industry usury. needs to do some cleanup of its own. Um, and some of those are some of the struggles. Well, and way back, and I, gosh, I'm going to date myself here, but I want to say this is when um, Hillary Clinton was working on the health care reform yes. when, when Clinton was in office. 1992. I attend- 1992. <laughs> I remember thinking, we don't need health care reform, we needed health insurance reform. Yes. And it, it just seems like that's the obvious, but no one would ever bring that up because that's where all the money is to be made and moved through the system. And so it's just kind of, like you said, you bring up this this obvious point and hard to argue with Bernie because he's he's making a very salient point. But it's it's like it goes back to what you said. You'll crash the system. It it we we have we have problems that we need to address and and etc. Cost is the first one. It's really expensive because of this cost. People are not getting the care that they need, and um, Mayor Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders have both uh, grabbed onto a statistic. Um, Pete used it. Uh, Mayor Pete used it in the last debate in Iowa, and Senator Sanders used it in the debate this week. And it's a statistic that uh, came out in a Commonwealth Fund study last year that said eighty. 7 million Americans age 18 to 64, so working age Americans and voting (laughs) Americans, 87 million Americans were inadequately insured in 2018. Holy moly. 87 million. And so this study, I've I've gone back and I've reviewed the Commonwealth study to kind of say, okay, where are they going? Where are they finding this? Now, I'd seen it before, but hadn't really dug in. It's three places. It's the uninsured population, 
um, which is a piece of that puzzle, but, but, but a smaller piece of that puzzle. The Affordable Care Act has reduced the number of people who have no insurance. Then you've got people who have a gap in insurance. But the majority of that 87 million are this new category that's really been created in the last decade called under-insurance. And that is a group of people who have health insurance, typically through their work, but the deductible and out-of-pocket are too large for their family income. So if somebody in the household gets sick, they have no way of coming up with their deductible, their coinsurance. So those families are either not getting the care they need or getting the care and can't pay for it. It creates bad debt for the doctor or the hospital, or they're filing for bankruptcy. So that's an enormous, enormous problem. And I want to just draw our attention to the fact that we have about well, a little less than 14 minutes left to solve this problem together. <laughs> and, and I do want to hear the I do want to hear the hope. Held the best for the last quarter here. Okay, good. The, this 87 million is I believe what everybody involved in the insurance industry, whether that's the hospital and physician side, whether it's the insurance company side, whether it's the employer, we must solve this affordability challenge. And if everyone thinks this is somebody else's job, then the opportunity to solve it will get taken away <laughs> and, hmm. and should. Um, this number has skyrocketed in recent years as deductibles have risen. In the individual insurance market, the average deductible is about $5,000 per person now. Oh. And for many households, that is just out of reach. So we've got to find ways for employers to make better decisions, for insurance products to make better decisions, and so we can put these out-of-pocket and deductibles back down to a level where a family has a chance to afford it. I believe that's why voters have said this is their number one issue. I don't think it's the uninsured population in this country. That is an issue and has been an issue. And the Affordable Care Act helped. We have 20 million people who have health insurance today that wouldn't have had it if it wasn't for the Affordable Care Act. So we have, we have, we have had some help on the uninsured, but we created this underinsured problem. In the process. And, and, and one of the things I'll sometimes say is, you know, if, if I as a politician could could get all those 87 million people to vote for me, do you know what they would call me? President. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because President, President Trump got 62 million votes. I mean, there's 25 million more people that, that have this insurance adequacy problem than even voted for President Trump in the last election. Right. And I, I think this is what the, the Democratic candidates have really latched on to this issue. And, and, and as I mentioned, in, in fact, Mayor Pete and Senator Sanders have both mentioned this exact survey. Um, Elizabeth Warren has referred to it, not mentioned it directly recently. But they've kind of latched on. This is what America feels bad about, is that, yeah, I've got insurance, but if somebody gets sick, 
I, I don't know what we're going to do. And so then people aren't getting the care they need. And that is happening more and more and more. And the, the cover of the book is a, is a, is a Tyrannosaurus Rex cartoon, which you kind of wonder, what does a T-Rex have to do with health care? <laughs> and um, which is the point. Uh, uh, they're obsolete. Really a little intrigue. <laughs> so the defining physical characteristic of a Tyrannosaurus Rex is their little T-Rex arms. Right. right? You can just kind of envision this big, massive dinosaur with these little bitty T-Rex arms. And so in, in the book, I, I say, so let's pretend that there's a button on the wall, a dinosaur survival button, but it's pretty high on the wall. All the T-Rex has to do is walk up and push that button. And if he pushes the button, or she, I'm not going to say whether it's a male or a female T-Rex, so the T-Rex walks, but it can't reach the button, even though it's right there. It can see it, it just can't reach it. And that is healthcare in America. I think we have the best hospitals, I think we have the best doctors, and yet, and this is a shocking statistic, in the United States, people die from things that could have been found and cured within the healthcare system at a 58% faster rate than other economically developed countries. Oh, that's I'm going to say that again. People in the United States are dying at a 58% faster rate from stuff that could have been cured. Hmm. And that's the great tragedy of the healthcare system, is that we're paying all this money, we've got these great docs and these great hospitals, and yet... Our outcomes, if we just say how many times, how frequently does the healthcare system fail, that there was a drug or a procedure or a cure for something that could have been applied, it wasn't applied, and that individual died. In the United States, we tragically are, are failing in this really, really important element. And I'm not hearing any politicians refer to this. And if we could get the politicians, the insurance companies, the hospitals, the doctors, to all focus on disease as the enemy. If you're a Democrat, the Republican's not the enemy. If you're a Republican, the Democrat's not the enemy. You know, if you're an insurance company, a lot of people are going to think you're the enemy. But even an insurance company, a pharmaceutical company is not the enemy. The enemy's cancer. The enemy is diabetes. The enemy is cardiovascular disease. The enemy is all these other diseases. If we could just focus all of our attention on beating that enemy and, and, and reducing this T-Rex effect, moving us from being the, the worst among economically developed countries in terms of, uh, and the study is called Mortality Amenable to healthcare. So it's a big mouthful study, but what it really just looks at is say how frequently is the healthcare system failing the people who could have been helped. But that's but where we need to go. Aren't we making way too much money off of not solving these healthcare issues, especially the chronic ones? I mean, isn't this where what's keeping the economy float, especially the hospital systems, is by treating all of these problems? I mean, this is this is one of and I you, you, you sound like a Bernie Sanders speechwriter. Do I really? <laughs> so, but you're right. It is, it's these improper motives, and I think that's what we have to get lined up. And by connecting everything to Medicare from a cost index, from a quality index, make it a Medicare-centric approach, we can lower costs for everybody. 
So, so you like that? Access. You like that approach? Then you like the Medicare? Because because I because I worked as a consultant in the healthcare, and if we yep. made everything based on Medicare, everybody would have gone broke, and nobody would have would have been able to be there to provide the services or deliver so, them. That is a great question. Thank you for clarifying. So what, by saying that, I do not believe that everybody should be in Medicare because I think it bankrupts the system. I do not believe that everybody should pay what Medicare pays because I think that also bankrupts the system. Um, health care is the number one employer in the United States. More people work in health care than any other industry. Retail used to be the number one employer. There are more people now working in health care than any other industry. So we have to be careful how many jobs we eliminate by cutting too much financing. But we also can't afford the system we have. So we need to connect the system together. The state of North Carolina tried this last year. For state employees, the state treasurer put out a, a ruling and said, we're going to pay hospitals 160% of Medicare for state employees. So for teachers, for first responders, well, no hospitals in the state signed up. <laughs> and so they said, well, what if we go, and they ended up getting it to about 200% of Medicare. And and by that point, five hospitals in the entire state of North Carolina had agreed, and so they had to they had to punt the whole idea. Ugh. But th- those ideas of how we connect them not pay the same because that would, in, in my view, we would have such a a loss in access to care that that would be a big a, a really big negative. I don't think America is ready to have access to care that looks like Canada or, or some of these other countries. I think we want our access to care, but we have to figure out how to slow down the financing. And I think a Medicare-centric approach that starts with transparency and then moves to some form of indexing that, that can allow the healthcare system to adjust over time could lower the cost, stabilize the cost, and allow hospitals, doctors, others, other vitally important stakeholders to have a chance to adjust economically over time and keep the access that we want. And it, it, it sounds like a dream, and I think for me it is a dream. Um, we've got to do something. If we don't do something, this, this T-Rex effect I talk about, we, we need to own that the cost has got too many Americans that are choosing not to get the care they need, and, and, they're, and, and they're not surviving. That should not be okay. Oh, well, we have done a whirlwind job to try to tackle a very, very big subject. Now we have about four more minutes left to talk, and I... I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question, but you do not have to answer it. Have you been asked to advise any campaigns on the development of their health care strategy? I actually was uh, not in the presidential campaign. I was in Washington, D.C., facilitating some other meetings last week, and I did have um, one member of the House of Representatives um, ask that if, if, if I could, could help them in terms of, of trying to, to create policy. Um, they, were, they were concerned about lack of, of ideas from others within their group. And um, so I did, I did actually receive that request last week. haven't really decided what I'm going to do with that yet. Right. Um, That's so still very exciting, I however. I my book and said, here's kind of the blueprint. Um, but, you know, it, 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 we'll, we'll see. I, I, I am willing to help however I could help. Um, but it would it it, it would be a, a a contribution, not a business. It's not a business I'm interested in. But sure. you know, I I I you know I've I've for better or worse, I've negotiated hundreds of insurance renewals. Right. 
And in that, you know, you, you learn over time, here's how the money works. And there are ways to make it work better. But if we, if we all, if everybody wants to protect status quo, whether it's the hospitals, whether it's the insurance companies, whether it's the government, anybody who wants to protect status quo um, is complicit in the problems we have. We have to change, but let's make sure we make the right changes. Okay, good. Well, so we have two more minutes, and I want to just remind our listeners that you are listening to Den Bishop, and he is the um, he's, you're the president of Holmes Murphy. Is that correct? That is correct. And uh, you are the author of, let's name your books, because there's two and I'm having trouble scrolling. Yeah, the, the, the recent book is The Voter's Guide to Healthcare. Okay, and that's the one we want to look to for sort of teasing out uh, what we might want to know about this up, through this upcoming election cycle. I love that your tagline for Holmes and Murphy is that you pride yourselves on selling thinking and not insurance. And that's actually <laughs> a really clever tagline because that's really what is required here. Nobody can come away with this from an, with an easy understanding of what we just discussed. It does take some time. So let's leave our listeners on a high note with one minute left. What would you say to them to go and do... Other than the obvious, of course, we can't we cannot tell our listeners to go buy a book, <laughs> but we can but we can tell them what they can do to arm themselves with better decision making. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, for for me, it is it is question what the candidates on any side are really saying, and I'll give you an example. And it's really hard because the candidates are not making it easy. Um, as an example, in, in the prior election cycles, the Republicans ran on repeal and replace, um, which I refer to as repeal and erase, because they really didn't have a plan for what they were going to do. And, and voters didn't force them to, to really describe that. And so in the end, they didn't have a plan and, and really didn't get anything done. In the same way, the Democrats now kind of have the ball, and they've got similar challenge. Um, Senator Sanders' Medicare for All plan abolishes Medicare. Hmm. Well, well, voters need to understand, well, wait a minute, what does that mean? Um, Mayor Pete's Medicare for All Who Want It does not expand Medicare eligibility by one single person. Hmm. So, so the, the, on both sides, when the politicians talk about their ideas, Voters need to dig in and kind of say, but what are they really saying? Because the words they use and what's really in their policies, unfortunately, often don't really line up. And I wish I could make it really easy for your listeners, <laughs> but um, you know, I, I I I said that in a phone conversation with a, a radio audience last week uh, around you know that that Medicare for all abolishes Medicare, and the uh, radio host said silence is terrible on the radio, but I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, that's what it, it does. It replaces. 80% of the people with Medicare today have some type of private insurance. Hmm. And Medicare for all outlaws private insurance. So even those people on Medicare would have to change what they have. And you go, well, is that what we want or is that not what we want? And, and again, it's equal errors. I'm, I try not to throw arrows just on one side. It's just easy to have a soundbite that doesn't really explain what the politicians are really wanting to uh, to do. Well, Den, it's been a great hour. Can you believe that we just spent an entire hour talking about this? I guess you do this all the time, but... <laughs> Boy, I just feel like we only, um, you know, scratched the surface on this one. But thank you so much for letting us try. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us here today. 
Absolutely. Thank you, and I appreciate your uh, approach to these issues and trying to tackle some of these hard political issues in a, in a nonpartisan way. Uh, you know, congratulations and thank you. And then w- really quickly for our listeners, um, name the places that they can go on the Internet to find you and perhaps your book as well. Sure. The Voter's Guide to Healthcare is available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com, both. Okay. And then do you want to direct them to your website if they want to learn a little bit more about what you do at Holmes Murphy? Sure. If they, if they look up uh, HolmesMurphy.com, they can get to the Voter's Guide information there, and we send out a weekly blog around what's going on with politics and health care and, and how, we, uh, how we're navigating this. Absolutely. Okay. Awesome. You've been amazing. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you for joining us at KUCI. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for tuning in to KUCI in Irvine. Now, a remarco from your friendly neighborhood, Mac DeMarco. This is Mac DeMarco. I never went to college, but now I'm all over the radio stations. Peace. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. John Sylvan invented K-Cup in 1904.